I'm actually really excited about what I'm going to share. We're going to pull in some uh, a really creative words, a really creative guy in LA, and the words of a Nobel-winning psychologist, and the word of God, and we're going to pull it all together to show you something about how God makes things new. Because the God that I know and believe in is in the retelling business. He's in the retelling business. I showed you various verses from the Bible last week that show us that God is in a renewal and restoration and reconciliation. God is wanting to literally renew, to make new again. And what's fascinating is what God is going to renew because as you read through the Bible, you find this phrase, all things crops up time and time and time and time and time again. God wants to actually renew everything. But what does that mean for us? Well, your story, your life has been told one way, through your eyes. But what if there was a different way to tell your story? What if there was a different lens, a different perspective to see your life story through? What if you could be healed of some of the pain in your story and there could be a different way to view it? And what if in that retelling you could be renewed and restored? Perhaps that's what God means when he talks about renewing and restoring all things. Perhaps he wants to work with you to tell a different version of your story. Because we all have stories. We all, when, when people ask you about your life, you tell a story. And what's fascinating, as I'll show you, is different people tell different stories about the same thing. So there can be one event, and there can be lots of stories. Bam. Jumping ahead, because I'm too excited. So I want to explore this power of story, really. If you want a title, you can call it the power of story. And now God retells our stories. I want to go back and look at the first people the Bible talks about, Adam and Eve, and see how we can make sense of this idea of being a new thing. And you remember last week when I, I said, often when we, we hear those words, God wants to do a new thing, we always think, we tend to think externally. We tend to think, oh, that's great. God's gonna, God can fix this, or God can sort my finances out, or God can heal this, or God can bring this new person into my life, or God can bring back this relationship. And God may well want to do that, but more and more and more, the primary thing God wants to do is to transform you and to renew you and to reconcile you to who you really are. There may be some external things that happen, but primarily God's involved in renewing you. That's what he's bothered about, first and foremost. And he wants to do that not just for you, but because your life is not just about you, because when you get renewed and redeemed and restored, you affect all the people around you. Because your life, as you should know by now, is not just about you. It's meant to be about all the people around us that we meet. Because they also need redeeming and restoring and renewing. And last week I encouraged you to step out of this, uh, what I call a neos culture. There's two words in, in Greek for new, neos and kainos. Neos means new in sense of time. Kainos means new in terms of freshness. And generally in our culture we're con continually looking for the neos thing, the new thing, the, the latest thing. But actually there's something about a fresh thing that can actually be really powerful. So I said this, have you got it there, Josh? I said that I had a strong sense in these coming days there is greater life to be found than ever before in something you already possess or something you already know how to do or with someone you already know. Lots of times when we want an answer to a problem, we go looking for something new or something new, something out there. But actually, I believe that a lot of the time the answer is in something you already have or already know to do or somebody you already know. God has already provided it. We're just not very good at seeing it. Okay, let's get into the power of story. Have you got the next slide there, dude? Your brain is wired to tell stories. You can read any psychology. It will tell you your brain wants to put the pieces together. 
Which is why when you go through anything, it's important that you are told what happened. Because if you're not told what happened, your brain will fill in the gaps. You know, if you just think about, if you only know certain things about an event, your brain fills in the gaps, doesn't it? Your brain doesn't like having gaps in stories, it fills it in. That's what happens. Because your brain likes stories. Psychologically, neurologically, your brain likes stories. Now what's interesting is there can be one event, so this morning is an event, let's think of this morning as an event, and what happened, happened. So this is an event that happened, and, and factually certain things went on. All the words I've said are a fact, all the songs we've sung. But then you will each have a story about this morning, and they may all be completely different. One event, completely different stories, because you come into this event with your own emotions, your own past, your own thoughts about what church is or is not or should be, your own upset, your own anger, your own frustration, your own joy. You come into it with all that, your own fears, your own anxieties. And because you come into this event with those things, your story reflects those things. So if I asked 10 people what happened on Sunday morning, I would get 10 different stories. Partly because you might meet different people. But even if I asked 10 people what did Adam talk about, I would get 10 different stories. And what's fascinating is, and we do this all through life, so every event that you go through, you've made up a story about it. I don't say made up in a light. I mean, you've, your brain's made a story. Every good event, every bad event, you have a story about it in your mind. And that story is what you believe to be true. That story, though, also is not just about the event, because it also affects your destiny. Because it affects your future. Because the story about yesterday affects your story about tomorrow. It's the power of story. You see, if you came into this event today and you came in all, you could come in all upset, you could come in all frustrated, you could come in all hurt, and you could feel like nobody heard you. And you'd go away from this event going, nobody heard me. Even though you might have been listened to, you could still feel that nobody heard you. And then you'd go, oh, church is rubbish, nobody heard me, I'm not going tomorrow. Or you could come into that same event, have those same interactions and go away going, oh, I'm so pleased I got heard, I want to go next week. Do you see how one event, one story, affects your future story? That's why story is so important. And it's fascinating to understand it. A Nobel Prize winning psychologist, Daniel Kahneman, he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. It'll take you a slow time to get through it because it's one of those penguin classics that's this thick, written by a Nobel Prize winning psychologist. But anyway, in about page 300 and something, there's some really good stuff. Um, if you watch the TED Talk first. Um, he says this. He says, when it comes to our story, we have, we have two selves. We have an experiencing self, and then we have a remembering self. So part of us experiences what we're going through. And psychologically, you are present for about three seconds in every moment. That's what psychologists tell us. You're psychologically present for about three seconds. After that, you're relying on what you remembered of the event, which is why you're remembering self so important. Because what you remember of the event is how you build the story. So in other words, there's part of our brain that experiences what we're going through, and then there's another part of our brain that remembers what we've gone through. So Josh, next slide. And he's done all sorts of studies which have all been peer-reviewed and everything, and he's got fascinating results. What's key is that he's shown that what we, it is not what we experience that define us, but how we remember what we experienced. What we experience doesn't define us, but how we remember what we've experienced. 
He also shows how an experience ends as a huge bear and how we remember it. Now, this is really key when you're playing games with kids, okay? Always stop before there's a fight. Just, it's one of the things I've learned. Just, if it's going well, stop and do something new. Because it will probably end up in tears at some point. Because that's what happens. And that's just Faye and I playing together. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm just joking. But in his book, he tells of somebody who enjoyed beautiful music on a CD, but at the end it was scratched and produced a horrible noise. This person went, the whole experience was ruined. Well, was it? He had 40 minutes of the most beautiful music you could ever imagine. But one moment at the end, and it, it always ruined. Because the end of an event is really powerful towards your memory. So if you can, while it's going good, stop it. That creates a good memory. That's why when you go to sleep on an argument, you've said you've had a bad day. Even though the rest of the day was beautiful. But that last little argument at the end of the day, we think, oh, it spoils the whole thing. No, it doesn't spoil the whole thing. It's just you remember the end of something more powerfully than something else. Kahneman points out in his book, the experience was not actually ruined, only the memory of it. What's powerful about his understanding is that our understanding of our past and therefore our predictions of the future and sense of our present is rooted not in what we've experienced, but what we remember. In fact, psychologically, our experiences count very little in terms of how we think about our lives. They count very little. That's not to say that we do not have painful and sometimes traumatic experiences. I know we do. You've been through them. I've been through them. But in the end, our experiences are not the dominant force in how we think about our lives. It's how we remember and what we choose to remember of our experience that tells our story. So, when it comes to your story, there have been and will be a number of events or experiences. What most of us fail to realise, yeah, just is that it's in our power to retell our story. That's what we don't realise. The version of events you currently hold and the stories you currently tell about past, current, even future events is a story. But we believe it's the story. We go, this is my life, this is the story in my life, this is what happened. Well, of course, there were some events in your life that happened and we can't change them. But you have read a story about those events that may well not be the story about those events. It might not be the story. It's why a group of people can all go through the same event at the same time, and yet some people come out stronger using the event as an opportunity to grow. Others come out of the event in a totally different place, telling anyone who has the misfortune to be listening how terrible and awful it was. One event, many stories. Erwin Raphael McManus, in his brilliant book, The Artisan's Soul, says this. Around the age of 13, I made a conscious decision to relinquish those memories as the material with which I defined my life. I could not challenge my experiences. What happened, happened. But I could change my focus and my interpretation. I began consciously rewriting my personal history. Oh, I love that line. Determined to learn from my most negative experiences and use them as material to develop my best self. He, he was in psychiatric care by the age of 12, by the way. By the age of 12, he was in a psychiatric hospital. And he'd been in and out of psychiatric care up to that age as well. I know without any doubt that our experiences are not nearly as powerful as our memories. We must never allow ourselves to believe that we are the sum total of our experiences. Though our experiences are real, we are more than those experiences. The moment we define ourselves by our experiences, we have lost our way. Be informed 
by your experiences, but do not be controlled by them. Those are beautiful words. So, perhaps this is how, in a very practical way, God makes everything new. Perhaps even your worst experiences can be seen, can be remembered in new ways. Perhaps with God's perspective, insight and healing, all things really can be made new. Of course, the experiences can't be changed, but how we see them, in fact, how we remember them, most certainly can. The question then is, which version of the story will you believe? Which goes back to the beginning of time, Genesis in chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So, and this is a, this is a 5,000 year old creation story, so don't get too hung up on whether it was all literal or not. The point is, this is a story about the human soul and humankind. It's a story about how God loves you, a story about how God cares for you, and a story about which voice you'll listen to. So God says, listen, so this is a voice, this is the truth. This is, my understanding is that this garden was perfect. God loved him, and Adam loved God, and there was nothing in the way, and there was this incredible place where there was no anxiety and no pain and no separation. There was none of that stuff in this place. But then another voice comes into play, a different voice, conflicting voice, a competing voice. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said, well, we, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say we mustn't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and we mustn't touch it or we'll die. You won't certainly die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband, who was with her and here. So again, don't get help or whether there was a talking snake or not. That's not really important to the story. People who talk about whether there was really a talking snake or not miss the point. The point of the story is that another voice comes in. There's something else that gets spoken, something else that gets said. There's the real story. And then there's a different story, a conflicting voice appears that suggests this God isn't really very kind because he seems to be keeping something from them. And what happens is Adam and Eve start to believe a different version of events. They start to believe a different story. And when they do that, they head down this path which is dark and painful and away from the very beautiful place that God had put them. What happened? They listened to a competing voice. But what is most beautiful, and this is the next part, is probably my favourite passage in the whole Bible, is God's response. How does God respond? God's done this beautiful thing. I mean, beautiful thing. And they go, no, you know what? I think I might go this story because I think I'm going to believe this story about my life. I'm going to believe this story about you. I'm going to believe this story about the garden. And it ends up in this dark and painful place. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He said, who told you that you were naked? It's my favourite passage, I think, because it shows the very heart of God that I know and have experienced. Firstly, he comes looking for him. But what's key here is the intonation in his voice. 
Where are you? I don't think he's mad. I don't think he's angry. I don't think he's cross. I don't think he's upset. I think he's just going, he's a dad who's lost his kid. And if you've lost a kid for just a few moments, you're not angry. You're desperate. You're desperate to find that child. Because you know that they're your responsibility and you love them and you care for them. And if you lose them, you're worried about them. And if you've believed a different story than the story God would tell about you, then he isn't angry with you. And he wants to know where you are, not because he wants to shout at you and yell at you, but because he wants to restore you and renew you. And once he's found you, as it were, then he asks, who told you you were naked? In other words, that's not my story about you, so which other story did you believe? My story about you is not that you were naked, but so you must have listened to a different story. You must have gone to a different place. In other words, which, which narrator did you choose to replace me as the narrator of your story? And then it's only when Adam and Eve believe a different story that this, it says that shame comes in. It was only when they allowed a different narrator to shape their decisions that they felt ashamed. And in the garden, in that place of perfectly understanding and receiving the love of God, there was no shame of their nakedness. So in other words... And I and, know and nakedness, we tend to think like clothing-wise, but actually, what, what about mentally naked, emotionally naked, your thoughts before him? In other words, no coverings, nothing on, just completely exposed. This is how much God loves you. And, and this is how much you know how much God loves you. Because if you can think of yourself being completely naked before him in every way and know that he loves you, then you really, really, really know that he loves you. That's the journey towards it. If you know that your thoughts could be completely exposed before him and you know it would be all right. If you know your emotions could be completely exposed before him and you know, if you know physically you could be completely exposed before him and you know you'd be all right, that tells you how much God loves you. Because the God that I know, you can expose it all and he just goes, ah, come here, kiddo. Let me give you a big smacking great kiss and a hug. That's the God that I know. I told you, didn't I? When, I, when I did this story in Nepal, I, with a different story actually, but I had Matt and it, like, I always sense, like, God, run, you know, in the story of the prodigal son, there's a different story in Luke chapter 15, and it's about a father and his son, and he runs towards him. He runs towards him, because he loves him. But Aaron and Eve's response, when they listened to a different story, was to make coverings for themselves. They covered up their nakedness, they hid. They were like, no, I don't want anybody to see that. Nobody can know about that. Nobody can know that I think in that way. Nobody can know that I did this. Nobody can know that this happened to me. I've got to cover it all up. That's what we do, isn't it? Cover it all up. When we allow a different narrator to our story, when we listen to a different voice than the Father, and allow that voice to craft a story around the events of our lives, we hide. And we make coverings for ourselves. The God of heaven loves you in your nakedness. Yes, in your physical nakedness, but in your mental nakedness, your emotional nakedness, psychological nakedness, when it's all stripped back and there's nothing left to hide behind, he loves you. You. Next one, Josh. And if you think back to your story, and if there is any sense of shame in your story, I want to tell you that is not God's story. If there's any sense of shame, when you think back, or you're aware, and some of you I know are thinking things right now that you're aware of, and you feel ashamed about it, whether it was you did it or whatever, and it can be a small, sometimes it can be a really small thing. It can be like you didn't get the grades you wanted in your GCSEs 40 years ago. 
It doesn't have to be a big mass. It can be a really small thing. But I want to tell you, God has no shame. There's no shame in God's story. So if there's any shame in your story, you know you are not listening to God's story. Because there's no shame in God's story. It's only when we move away from God's story of events that shame arrives. But the beautiful thing is that because of Jesus, as we move back to God's version of events, shame can go. You see, for many people, their inner voice, the narrator of their story, if you like, is simply an echo of their experiences. But it was never supposed to be like that. The narrator of your story was always meant to echo the heart of God. It's only when your inner voice, when the narrator of your story responds to and echoes the voice of God, that you start telling the true story about the events of your life. Too many of us have believed a conflicting story about the events of our lives, just like Adam and Eve, and it leads to a darker, more painful story and one that involves shame. You see, there's many stories that, that I've got in my life, and I could tell you completely different versions of them. I could tell you completely different versions of them. But the version I tell now is a version of healing and restoration and hope and provision. I could tell you a different story. I could tell you about loss. And I'm just talking about when I got made redundant. I could, I could tell you about loss. I could tell you about fear. I could tell you about anxiety. Or I could tell you about redemption and movement forward and openings and opportunities and developments. But you see, I've learned that to look at all my stories and go, what's God's story about that? 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 What? And when you learn to do that, and when you know and you see God's story, you go, oh, my life's been fantastic. And you can look at the events in my life and go, no, Adam, your life hasn't been fantastic. But I'm not looking at the events. I'm looking at the story God tells about the events. Because that's my remembered self. And I'm not going to live from my experienced self. I'm going to live from my remembered self. And I'm going to allow God to narrate that story. There's no shame in his story about you. When God narrates the story about the events of your life, there is no shame. Even when it's all stripped back and all the coverings are taken away, there is no shame. It has no place when God narrates the story of your life. And I realise some of us might have that sense of shame, sometimes because of an event that happened, and sometimes because of an event we caused or started. The event's not really the issue. The issue is that if we've believed a story about an event in our lives, and we feel our sense of shame is attached to that story, then this morning that story can be retold without the shame. And I'm, I'm going to offer to pray for you in a minute because I think there are some of us, and again, it don't have, and I, I'm not going to ask you, to, I don't want you to share the event. We're not going to share the event because the event's not really important. What's important is what's attached to it. And so in a moment, we're gonna, I'm going to offer the opportunity to pray with you because shame doesn't need to be part of your story. And it's not part of your story. And the God that I know frees us and heals us and releases us of those things. Amen. Do you want to share them? Have you got that slogan, Josh? This week I was, um, I was just praying and I saw um, like a picture. And it was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, store HMV. And um, this is the picture that I saw of a dog with a, the gramophone. And HMV stands for His Master's Voice. 
And when I, when I saw that, it just made me think about listening to his master's voice. And if you're a woman, you can put her master's voice if that's what you want. But just listening and tuning in. And on a gramophone, I haven't seen one, but I know that obviously it had a needle and it had to go on the grooves of the record. It had to be precise, it had to be precision. And then obviously the grooves of the record, you know, the sound came through the big gramophone so we could all hear it. But the point of it was to tune in to his master's voice, which is what Adam's been sharing about. There's many voices out there. There's many things going on. But to tune in to his master's voice is a wonderful thing. And then we'll hear the true story about what he wants for us. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Tara, thank you. Okay, shall we stand? Josh, do you want to play that in the background a little bit quieter while I'm talking? I'll play it a bit louder. This is what I want to do. Have you got that last slide? Oh, actually, no, no, I can't. You can't do two things at once. Yeah, you can. Can you overlay the last slide? Oh, that'll do. Yeah, just that. Okay. So this is what I want us to do. This is something I've done myself many times, and it's how I managed to retell my own story. Because there is a version of events and then there's a different version of events. So this is what I want to do. If you would like somebody to pray me or, or a couple of other people to pray with you in terms of that shame because you don't want it to be part of your story then I just want you to come forward. Josh, can you just pause the live, live stream as well please? Because we want to pray with you. But also if there's something in your story that you're not quite you know that it's not part of God's story. You can, I felt like shame was the key thing this morning. But you can say this prayer for anything. You can say it for anything. Okay. It does not involve whatever, if, if it's in here. Okay. But shall we all just, uh, yeah, if, if anybody would like to receive some prayer, I just want to invite you to come forward now. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Okay. Well, before we pray, we're going to just, as in prayer with you, we're going to say these words together, okay? So, you, Father God, I thank you for your version of events. I thank you that your story about the events of my life does not involve shame. I'm sorry that I've believed a different story and I repent of believing that story. Thank you for your forgiveness. I choose to believe your story about the events of my life and that shame plays no part in my story. I renounce and reject shame as part of my story and I receive your love and acceptance in its place. Okay, let's remain standing and you can keep worshipping. We're going to pray, but keep worshipping.